seated. Turn, please, in the Word of God to 1 John 5. The fifth chapter of 1 John, please. For those who were not here this morning, the message today is both in the morning and the evening is really the same message, one message divided into two, addressing the subject of, well, we've titled it Dealing with Doubt, but if you were theologically addressing the problem or looking for uh, a way in which such a subject is dealt with, the category you would file it under is the doctrine of assurance. The believer's right to be assured, to know your sins are forgiven, to know you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to know you're a child of God. I'm just speaking with someone today regarding how our salvation and our sense of assurance does not always happen at the same time. We mentioned that this morning, uh, turning your attention to the, the Westminster uh, Confession. And uh, in discussion, it just came back to me how uh, one man who was very influential in my early Christian life used to talk of his own conversion regularly. And at times he would make mention of the fact of the, the occasion when he cried out to God to save him. And then a couple of weeks later, how he was in a service singing and joining in the congregation in their worship, and it just hit him. I'm a child of God. <laughs> I'm a child of God. And it was that moment he, he sensed, in a way he hadn't, in the weeks between when he cried out to God to save him, and that moment, that real deep sense, I am truly the Lord's. And this is the witness of the Spirit. It is... Uh, what we referred to in 1 Corinthians 2 already this morning, that the Spirit is given to teach us the things that we have in Jesus Christ, that are promised to us in Jesus Christ, and we therefore should look for this. Now, I, this is not exhaustive, but I have endeavored to address some of the, the questions that arise pastorally when people come to you or talk to you about this subject where they're feeling a lack of assurance, wondering if they are saved. And so we trust it will be of help to you. Let me just say, if you currently struggle with this, or you find yourself at some point in the future struggling with doubt, please don't suffer in silence. Uh, it's uh, One of the things that Satan loves to do is to keep our fears locked up within our own mind. And it can be tremendously helpful just to talk. And sometimes, as, as many of us who have counseled frequently enough have discovered, really, the answers don't come at times from the preacher. You yourself, as you talk, as you get the thoughts out of your head, you're, you're able to actually see for yourself. You're able to hear yourself and you're able to give the answers that you need. So sometimes it's just talking. Just be able to talk in, a, in an environment of trust. And right there, the Lord will use what you already know to impress upon your heart what you have in Christ already. Sometimes the preacher has some solutions and helps to you as well. And we've seen that for which we're thankful to God. But I draw your attention again to the text that is perhaps preeminent in communicating a sense of the believer's right to be assured 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. John, when he writes in his gospel, he writes that men may believe. When he writes in this epistle, he writes to those that do believe and that they might come to a greater understanding of what they have. 
be aware of what they have in Christ. And so this is his burden, and it's the burden we have for you tonight, that you might know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, bless us. Give us the help we need. And draw near for this occasion, and that thou wilt deliver us from every ploy of the enemy, and grant us that unique and supernatural experience when we can testify that we felt ourselves shut in with God. To that end, then, we pray for the ministry of the Spirit in this place. May He make much of Christ, and may souls be drawn out after Him, and may Thy people be comforted, and may the hypocrite be exposed, and may those who have assurance and know whom they have believed, and possess that persuasion that you're able to keep that which you've, they've committed unto Christ. We pray that they would be even more greatly brought to joy for what they have in the Savior. Help us now and meet with us, we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. When the Westminster Confession of Faith addresses this subject of assurance, which we referred to this morning is in chapter 18 of the Confession, it presents two categories of people who possess assurance. There are those who are saved and know it, and there are those who are not saved, but imagine that they are. So you have those that are truly the Lord's, and those that imagine they are the people of God, and yet they are deluded or deceived for one reason or another. There are then those that exist who have no right to assurance, at least in their present state. For example, you can consider someone who is a universalist. They imagine that such is the nature of God's love and character or whatever other argument and factor that they may bring into it. At the last, they feel, they think that everyone will be saved. Everyone will be gathered in near to God. No one needs to fear any sense of divine judgment or wrath or eternal punishment. They, these are people we term universalists. They just think everyone in the world will all be gathered to be in the presence of God and His love and His care. These are in the category of those who have a false assurance. They have no grounds to believe that they are saved. They have no grounds to believe that this is how it will play out because the Bible clearly forbids this and makes it plain that there are those who go to their own place, so to speak, like Judas Iscariot. Others believe that they are saved by something that they do, and they believe that they have met whatever the standard is that either has been put before them by their form of religion that they adhere to, or something they've conjured up in their own minds. This can range from the committed Jehovah's Witness to the person who was told, repeat this prayer after me and sign their decision card. And again, I say this not to discredit or question the fact that people were genuinely converted who prayed a prayer after someone and then signed a decision card. Many were converted even through that kind of format. But the problem is that many actually were found out or exposed because they thought that simply by doing that, by the repetition of the prayer, by the signing of the card, that that then is the, the foundation of their salvation. That's the, the object that they're trusting in. They're saying, look what I did. Surely then I have done everything that God has required of me. They've misunderstood the entire message of salvation. And there are many other forms and expressions of, of this kind of reliance upon self, meeting a certain standard or criteria. But the common denominator is that they have a false view of how sinners are justified before God. Now, before we proceed, it may be helpful to turn to Matthew 7, and we look at familiar verses, but important verses, because our Lord Jesus shows this, this truth that is contained in the confession that there are those who have assurance and have no right to it. They believe they are the Lord's, but they have no foundation upon which to stand and have that assurance. So Matthew 7, we read a few verses from verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way, 
that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And down to verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. A number of factors to note from this passage, just observations I made when looking at it in preparation for this message. First, only a few in most of the periods of this, the history of this world, only a few press into the way of life. Now, it may be possible that there would be such a season in which that is not the case. I, I don't know, depending on how you view the extent of which revival can come to humanity. There may, there may be possibly a time in which there is an unusual event in which the majority are converted, but the Lord Jesus indicates that certainly the norm is that it is few. The normative experience is few. No matter how optimistic you may be, this is what the Lord Jesus teaches. Second, though such who stand before Christ as we have in verse 21 and following, though they profess knowledge of Christ, they rest in their own accomplishments. See that? They're resting in what they have done. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils and so on and done these works? They look at their own accomplishments. Third, they signify a public intimacy with Christ. This intimacy is, is uh, implied by the, the use of Lord, Lord. You find this, we find in Scripture, Lord, Lord used, or you have someone's name used twice over. It is, is it's a sense of the Lord drawing near to man, or in this case, man drawing near to God. Fourth, they perform heroic acts of piety. Even though they perform heroic acts of piety, their rejection of Christ as the only grounds of their acceptance makes them workers of iniquity. So you see from verse 22, they're looking at what they have done. They bring before the Lord what they have done. And because they have rejected what Christ has done and the sufficiency of his work, they become workers of iniquity. And we also see just one additional note here. Despite the noted shortcomings of their state, they express a form of assurance in their right to be welcomed by Christ. They, they come to him assuming that he should bring them in. They imagine that they have a right to come into his presence. And yet they don't know the Lord. In fact, the Lord says, I've never known you. Never. So the entire time, whatever years they have been involved in religious activity, And the frightening thing is that the Lord says many are going to experience this. Many. Ties into what we read in verses 13 and 14. That many go to the place of destruction. Few find the way of life. These many imagine themselves to be saved. So when the confession addresses this, when it points out the fact that there is such an assurance possessed by those who can only be described as hypocrites, are false. It's not dealing with a unique experience. Going by our Lord Jesus, it is something that is prevalent. It's found frequently in many places. And so as we address the, the subject of, of doubt and the whole idea of assurance, I think it's important for us just to recognize that it is possible to have a false sense of assurance. This morning we considered five ways in which the believer may struggle with doubt. Doubts regarding our election, our conversion, our affections, the absence of assurance, and doubts caused by the greatness of our sin. So we want to continue in this vein tonight with the Lord's help. 
So, as we continue on considering these various areas where doubts may arise first, or we might say on the sixth place, doubts caused by the committing of sin. We left off this morning by doubts that are caused by the greatness of our sin or our sense of the greatness of our sin, but there are doubts that are caused by the committing of sin. And I wanted to make that distinction there. In 1 John, this very epistle where we read in the third chapter, verses 8 and 9, John records there, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. I don't want to get bogged into, down into those verses particularly, but let me just say what John is describing is the reality that men may live their lives under the dominion of sin. That a man may feel the power of sin overcome and continue to dominate him. And he's saying this to those who are within the professing church. He's not just talking about people out there. He's addressing it so that those within the church can assess whether this is true of them. Is it true that sin has dominion over me? Because if a man lives and sin has dominion over him, then he's not born of God. And he is, to use the language of John, he is of the devil. The Christian, the true believer, cannot reconcile with sin. He recognizes that sin is a robber, robbing him of the things most precious to him. And so should you find yourself in a place where your resistance to sin is diminished, that your fight against sin is weakened, that you've come to a point of carelessness and you are no longer concerned with sin in your life, then really there's no place for me to get up here and try to make you feel better. It would be wrong for me to say that as you find yourself in a place where you're making excuse for sin, you're accommodating sin, you are permitting it to live and exist unfought in your life, it would be wrong for me to say that that is the place that the Lord Jesus Christ puts His people in and He just leaves them there. Again, We've mentioned it already. It's an Old Testament passage. It's quoted in Romans 6. Sin will not have dominion over you. There is a victory for the people of God. It's not an entire complete victory so that sin no longer is a problem. But as I say, if there's a carelessness, if there's a diminished fight to the point that you just resign yourself to the presence of some sin or maybe all expressions of sin as they come to you, there's a huge problem. And so as a preacher, when we come to God's Word, we must draw the line when a man willfully gives himself to sin without sorrow or desire for reformation. It cannot give comfort to you. If you come to me and you say, I'm struggling with doubt, I'm wondering whether I'm saved, and in the process of conversation, you confess that you have absolutely no sense or desire to resist sin in your life. It will not be my job to try and put you into heaven when you don't belong there. Think of the language of Galatians 5. Contemplate what the apostle says before he gives certain evidences of a true spiritual life. He speaks of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.19 the works of the flesh are manifest. They're evident. We can all see them. We know them. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, all these forms of, of fleshly sins. Whether married or unmarried, these things are the works of the flesh. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, you bring, you actively bring animosity, anger, wrath, division, 
between people. It's the works of the flesh. Envings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. The apostle then says, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past. In other words, you know this, but you need to hear it again. They which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now the apostle was God's gift in communicating to the early churches the sense of their comfort in Christ. The apostle Paul becomes the key instrument in expounding to sinners what they have in Christ, what they possess by virtue of their union with Christ, how they are now positionally before God because of their faith in Christ. But he will not tolerate, he will not stand by and excuse a carnality that is not resisted, a form of living that is so far from a pursuit of holiness that is evidently without the power of the gospel. There's no change, no desire for the things of God, no evidence of a new nature. So let me say to you, young people, and everyone, if we gather here harboring this sense that everything's fine with me, and yet in your heart of hearts you know that there's this ongoing commitment to sin without any sense of striving against it, you ought to fear. Again, Many will say to me in that day, many will possess a sense of assurance that is unfounded. It's not warranted. At the same time, your experience may better fit what the apostle goes on to say in the epistle to the Galatians when he enters into chapter 6, verse 1, and says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Overtaken in a fault. So, a man may be overtaken in a fault without having sin having dominion over him, without sin having dominion over him. And sometimes the challenge we have is assessing, where am I? And as we live under this constant battle with sin, at times it seems to have more power than we can bear, and we begin to question, am I really a child of God? Because instead of recognizing perhaps legitimately, that we are overtaken in a fault, we come to the conclusion that sin has dominion over us. Therefore, we cannot be saved. How can you discern between sin having dominion over you and being overtaken in a fault? First, is your heart attached to wickedness? and unregenerate company. You feel an attachment to sin in whatever form it may be expressed and the company of sinners. The blessed man doesn't stand among such. So you ask yourself, am I attached to this company and this kind of living? Or do you value purity and godly company? Maybe you could ask this question. Are you more offended by the brother that rebukes you for sin than the man that entices you to sin and questionable behavior? 
It can be exposing to, to look at scenarios in your life in which some loving parent, pastor, friend recognizes a shortcoming, rebukes you in love, and you've responded with resentment, with anger, maybe even an end of the relationship, versus someone who's encouraged you, enticed you to something that is not spiritual at all. Maybe it's some flagrant sin. Maybe it is some joke that is told, encouraging you to join in with the jest of it all. Maybe it is, hey, come and watch the game instead of going to worship God. So there are varying degrees of what they may entice you to, and you're less offended by their enticement away from Christ than a sincere brother or sister who rebukes you. That, that can be very revealing about the condition of your heart. Second, when you're tempted and sin, do you grieve and confess it, or do you lightly pass over it? So there you are, in the midst and throes of temptation, you succumb. After all is said and done, is there grief and confession? Or just a moving on with the rest of your life. Third, are you content to let things remain as they are? Or do you feel an impulse to seek deliverance in the areas where you are weak? Fourth, have you ever experienced the joy of salvation? And can you relate to David who cried in his repentance, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation? understand that? Or perhaps you've never really sensed any joy in the forgiveness of sins and have no yearning to know what it's like. Again, how you answer questions like these, they may not be definitive, but they certainly can help you. Because if you see David there and you read Psalm 51 and you feel like that, that the heartbeat of his cry reflects your own. And you long more than anything else for the restoration of joy that you had before. It's a good sign. If you're prepared to answer such questions honestly, neither exaggerating your corruptions nor hiding them, you may discover the root of your problems and whether you have placed yourself in a condition of false assurance or you actually have the root of the matter and you're in need of delivering grace over a particular weakness and sin. How do you look at the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of your sin? Do you see in Christ the power to forgive all sin? Do you see in Christ the power to grant deliverance from its Effort to have dominion over you. I honestly believe some of our greatest fault is seeking Christ for salvation and then imagining that we can continue the Christian life in the power of our own will and strength. And that's maybe why we fall so hard sometimes, so that we learn that our strength is Him, our hope is Him. That the entire organization of salvation is to drive us to Christ for everything. To be the resource, yes, of our forgiveness. The resource for our justification. But also the resource for our sanctification. That we need Him to be changed. We need Him to be transformed. It's not just, I've come to Christ and not by my own will, I'll become a good and godly person. Do you reach out to him in your despair? Any godly interest, any engagement in spiritual warfare must be perceived as a mercy from the Lord to be grasped upon. 
Perhaps there's, perhaps there's some here tonight and you're, you're like the wounded soldier. And you wonder, you wonder if you're going to make it. And I say to you, wounded by succumbing to temptation, wounded by the onslaught of the enemy who makes accusations against the brethren, wounded there, I call you to stand fast, to endure, and to grow not weary in well-doing. Now you imagine sometimes that well-doing has to be something that is productive, spreading the gospel, sharing of the means that you have. But sometimes well-doing is just keeping up the fight, not succumbing. Satan can have us on the ground sometimes in a fetal position. And yet even there, don't give up. James 4 7 and 8, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Don't allow sin to rob you of all that is in store for you in Christ. The seventh point we're considering today is doubts caused by spiritual Deadness, doubts caused by spiritual deadness. I was considering this point, my mind was drawn to Psalm 63, verse 3. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Psalmist expresses a recognition of God's mercy. And it enlivens him to praise, doesn't it? Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. But there can be times when the professing believer does not feel this way. When your spiritual life feels mummified, you can't get release. You can't get any sense of peace or joy. Now, this problem is connected to but distinct from the matters of our affections that we considered this morning. So, there, there could be a little bit of overlap here, but I've tried to keep them distinct. A sense of spiritual deadness. It, it reveals itself in the absence of spiritual exercises and numbness to the means of grace. It's spiritual deadness when you find that personal prayer is non-existent, when public prayer is disconnected, when... The Bible's no longer read and sermons seem to be unprofitable to you. You look back in your life, it wasn't always that way, but it seems that way today. You wonder, how can it be? How can it be? How can it be that I can't pray? How can it be that I get nothing from the Word? Is it not true that for the children of God, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into their hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, 6. So if I don't feel that impulse, if I don't sense that driving principle of life, maybe I'm not saved. Why is it that the Bible has no interest to me as it once did? Is it not true that those with spiritual life who are born again, 1 Peter 2, 2, desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow? So what's wrong with me? To this, we say firstly, the experience of feeling spiritual deadness, that experience itself is not evidence of deadness. And I say that because if you ask any Christian who's been saved at least five years, they will tell you they are acquainted with his experience. I don't care who they are. Pastors, elders, deacons, missionaries, seminary teachers, professors. So if it's true that you can go to pretty much any Christian, mature, and been saved for at least five years, 
and ask them, have they experienced for themselves a sense of spiritual deadness? And they respond in the affirmative. Then it cannot be that this is a definitive mark that we don't know the Lord. Second, if this state displeases you, know that there are many who fall into this condition without any concern whatsoever. So you sense your spiritual deadness and it bothers you. I'm saying to you, many fall into a condition of spiritual deadness and they do not bat an eyelid. They don't care. Such individuals usually turn from Christ altogether, though perhaps not always. As such, that displeasure you have about this experience marks a difference between you and them, at least for now. Thirdly, when in such a condition, I say to you, you must not neglect the means of grace cannot neglect the means of grace. What do we mean by the term means of grace? We refer in that term to the gifts that God has given to encourage life. We refer to the scriptures. We refer to prayer. We refer to the hearing and the preaching of God's word and the gathering of the saints and the experience of that and sitting at the Lord's table enjoying His ordinances both even in the observation as well as the participation of, of baptism as well as the Lord's Supper. Don't neglect. I've mentioned this many times but that, that's, that's what Thomas did. Isn't it? He neglected the means of grace. After the death of Christ and the, the fear that gripped his heart that what have I given myself to? He's dead. And they're all fearful. They're all doubting. But everyone but him is gathered together there in the evening of that first resurrection day. And Christ comes to, there to his gathered disciples and immediately issues the tonic for their doubting hearts. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Thomas missed out. He wasn't there. He missed the medicine. He missed the tonic. Had he been there, he would have spared himself an entire week of misery. But I take my hat off to Thomas, at least it only went on for a week. There are believers who in such despair and in the folly of their logic will hide themselves away in their despair. Like someone who's told, listen, there's a doctor who has the answer for your ailment. He knows precisely what to do. He can help you. And instead of going to him, interacting with him, getting the answer from him, you just stay away. Spiritual deadness needs to be countered by exposure to the means whereby God gives life. Fourthly, recognize that your darkness, this, this darkness of spiritual deadness, may be placed upon you by God himself. It may be placed upon you by God himself. Now, there may be a mystery to this, a mystery in which we begin to ask the question, why is it that to a soul that's spiritually alive and a child of God, that God would so withdraw, so to bring them into an experience of feeling like there's a spiritual deadness in the soul? Why would he do that? I could postulate different answers, but in specific cases, we may not ever find out or know. In Isaiah 50.10, a text I have quoted many times, Who is among you that feareth the Lord and obeyeth the voice of a servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? 
Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Walking in darkness. What do you do? You keep trusting. You abide before him. You humbly petition him to show his face to you again. And yet, you can actually come to a point. And this, this is where faith arises in a way that makes no sense to an onlooker who has not the grace of God in their hearts. You can come to a text like Isaiah 50, where you have one who fears the Lord and obeys, yet walks in darkness and has no light. They could come to the point where they actually will resign themselves to this, Lord, even if the darkness abides for the rest of my life, I will trust you. Even if the darkness abides for the rest of my life, I will trust you. That's kind of what Peter expressed when the multitudes were swarming Christ after the feeding of the 5,000. Thousands and thousands, teeming multitudes swarming Christ. And begins to express to them what it means to be a believer in him, to eat his flesh, to drink his blood, truly be committed to him, to rest in him and trust in him alone. They turn back and walk no more with him. And Jesus turns and says to the disciples, will you also go away? Peter says, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. It's that sense that where would I go? If I'm to flee the darkness into a light not provided by God, am I any better? Or am I better in a darkness that has providentially been appointed by God and I will trust Him in the darkness? Fifth, recognize that while God can meet with anyone, anywhere, Recognize that he has appointed certain means to benefit men. And I'm playing on what we've considered already somewhat. Think of what would you say to a lost man who showed an interest in being saved? Would you tell him to read more of the Bible or less of the Bible? Would you tell him to listen to more sermons or fewer sermons? What would be your advice? I say to you, in a condition of spiritual deadness, go and do likewise. Sometimes you have to go back and just begin again. Read the Bible as if for the first time. Listen to sermons as if for the first time. And since you have more spiritual understanding than someone not yet converted, Perhaps give yourself to exercises that God has said He will use in a unique fashion. I think of the language when He said that there are some things that go not out but by prayer and fasting. And should the spiritual darkness so linger and seem immovable, it may be that fasting and prayer, waiting on God, crying out to Him in the darkness, even abstaining from the gifts that God has given to us in order that you might get through to God might be the very means of your relief. Read biographies of good men, great Christians. Whatever you do, feed. Feed on that which is beneficial. Do not accept spiritual deadness without employing all the means God has appointed to deliver us from it. Number eight, doubts caused by trials. Doubts caused by trials. I think of that passage in 2 Corinthians 11 as an example to us. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and following, of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, 
in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, and watchings often and hunger and thirst, and fastings often and cold and nakedness. Beside those things which are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is offended? And I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. Trials are no minor test of our faith. That's why we call them trials. If they were easy, they wouldn't be designated as trials. And at times they bring us to despair. A question or standing before God. They're so heavy we begin to ask, is it possible that one for whom Christ died would be permitted to go through this? Is it possible that God could love me and permit these things to happen? Experiences of oppression and abuse, unemployment, failure, rejection, poverty, sickness, betrayal, divorce, family rejection, unbelieving and wicked children, persecution, Imprisonment, death of a loved one. And I could go on. These things overwhelm. They make us cry out at times. And if you've never been here, if you've never been here, the Lord has been very kind to you. They make us cry out at times for death. For we feel it would be the only relief. I'd rather die than have the pain. What do we say? Well, I say to you, beloved, first, trace the experience of those in the Scriptures. You must. They are written for our learning. If it's easy for you to remember, you think of the three J's. Joseph, Job, and Jeremiah. Study their lives. These men went through the mill. You're therefore not alone. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Trace the experience of those in the Scriptures. Don't just resign yourself and begin to think this trial, this, these multiplied trials all coming at the same time, these compounding trials make me feel like I'm not saved. Go and read the lives of other saints. Two, consider your priorities. Think about it. Think, think about your priorities. Despite the pain... Would you rather have your trials or the wrath of God hanging over your head like an unbeliever? Would you rather God be glorified or yourself relieved from your suffering? A child of God, by what can only be described as the miracle of the new birth, and that life which we possess is able to prefer the glory of God over their own relief. Remember the language of the psalmist. Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. These hard times are very instructive. Third, 
you may have asked for this experience indirectly. You may have asked for your trial indirectly. What do I mean? We sing language like this. Jesus, keep me near the cross. That's a prayer. Jesus, keep me near the cross. Without thinking of what it is going to take to bring that to pass. What will it take to keep you near the cross? It might take the very trial you're going through. This is not evidence that you're unregenerate. This is evidence that you're a child of God and God is answering your prayer, giving you the desire of your heart, though not in the way you ever imagined. I think of Job, the end of chapter 1. He arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head. You sort of see him moving through these motions, tearing apart his garment, going through the process of finding the blade that he may shave the hair off his head. And then finding a spot, probably a familiar spot, where he falls on the ground and worshipped. And in the midst of his worship, perhaps for an extended season, he is without words. He may even be there for hours. We're not told. I think, I think it wrong for us to so abbreviate what is given to us. It is quite possible this is an elongated experience. Like I say, you just skip over those words of him renting his mantle, shaving his head, falling upon the ground and worshipping. And you go straight then to the words that he speaks. But as I have said from this pulpit before, he has brought, I think, through the worship, through the contemplation, through the recognition of the character of his God, through the ponderings of God's mercy and goodness to him, he eventually has brought, through the clarity that descends through worship, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. In the ninth place, just two more. Doubts caused by the accusation of hypocrisy. The accusation of hypocrisy. Psalm 24 Psalmist there says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up a soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The psalmist wants to be in the presence of God. He understands what it means to be there and what it takes to be there. And yet there are some that cannot come into the God's presence because they're afflicted by a, a crippled conscience, specifically with regard to this sense of hypocrisy. Now, this, this is varied across the different nature that we may possess, but it, it's reflected in this way, in which what we do and how we live, we begin to question why it is that we do what we do. We may even recognize a tendency within ourselves to do things for the praise of men. A desire to seek recognition, to have people recognize what we've accomplished, to court the opinions of others, 
to desire that people know we did something and long for them to give us feedback because we, we think we did a good job. These kind of thoughts come into our hearts at times. And then, in a moment of clarity, we begin to realize this doesn't reflect me in my private life. This desire to serve, to accomplish things, to do things that are pious and good and credible and recognized, I don't have that same urgency in private, that same desire and longing in private. And then you begin to recognize that you have, at least by your own assessment, you have this public persona and this private persona, and in the disconnect between the two, you're crippled with a sense of, am I a hypocrite? Am I like those Christ condemned for being hypocrites, praying long prayers and doing things out of pretense? And so you're suffocated. You're suffocated by this as you assess the fact that what people see, what you desire them to see and know and recognize you as doing and accomplishing is not the same when you think of your life just you before God. I say in the first place, this, this is serious. It is serious. Because the Lord Jesus warned about this. He, he, he gave many, many warnings about being like this. Of how, having this religious persona. But it doesn't really reflect the person. And he got to the heart. He got to the heart of it in John 5, 44. Powerful, powerful, exposing language of the Savior in John 5, 44. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another? And seek not the honor that cometh from God only. I may have said this before, but I'll never forget the first time that text like jumped off the page to me for the first time. I was preaching through John, and it's like I never saw this text before. Or if I saw it, I did not understand what the Lord is saying, because essentially what he is describing here is, if I could put it in another way, frame it differently, you can't believe because. Your desire is to receive honor one of another and not the honor that comes from God alone. You can't believe because that's your motivation. So you see the dilemma that someone feels when they recognize they have this public persona, they have this private persona, they don't seem to mesh very well, and then they get crippled. Am I, am I a child of God? Am I even saved? Or am I like those Christ condemned? So in the first place, it's serious, as we've noted. In the second place, your awareness of this and your concern regarding it would appear to reveal it as a weakness from which you need to be delivered rather than evidence that you are not saved. It is a weakness from which you need to be delivered rather than evidence that you're not saved. The fear of man brings a snare. And since it was so powerfully Existing among the religious elite of Christ's time, it does not stay in that environment. It infiltrates all of our hearts. And it's a weakness, some more for some than for others. Time is running on. Let me say thirdly then, regarding this, pray against these self-sins this desire for recognition, and make a study of Philippians 2. I can't get into it, but you know Philippians 2. Go there, see, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. It's not about you, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also in the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you go on there to see him who was he was God manifest in flesh and takes this place of condescension. That's to be your study. You let that mind be in you, you'll be delivered from the conflicting feeling of your heart. Finally, doubts caused by the lack of spiritual growth. Let's just close with this. The lack of spiritual growth. Jesus teaches us in John 15, 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. And we read that, we look at our lives sometimes, we begin to question where is the fruit, 
and then ask ourselves, are we really his disciples? We know our God desires that we bear fruit for his glory, yet sometimes we assess our lives over a period of years. We begin to question whether we really bear much fruit at all. The regularity of our backsliding, the frequency with which we let souls pass us by without sharing the gospel, the sense that the sermons are not as sweet as they used to be, prayer is less invigorating as it used to be. Psalm 92, as you find yourself aging and maturing, does not appear to be your own experience, where the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. We say, that doesn't seem to be my life. Maybe I've never been saved. To this end, we respond. Do you desire to grow? Because if you don't, there's your problem. Second, harvesting comes in seasons. We're not always as fruitful as we may have been at other occasions. Yet let us not despair. There can come seasons in the future of more fruitfulness yet again. Do we desire it? Do we long for that? And finally, fruit-bearing looks different for different people. I mean, think of Anna and Simeon in the temple. If they were to compare their life to Peter being the instrument of the conversion of 3,000 souls, they could assess... We don't bear much fruit. Couldn't they? They could conclude that. The comparison, where they look across and they see there's Peter and that's fruit bearing. 3,000 converted in one day. We're not to enter into this kind of comparison of one another. We're not to be other people. We have our place. And fruit-bearing can look like a woman who keeps coming to the house of God to pray. <laughs> and a man who's telling everyone, anticipating that the Christ is coming. Just simple excitement in what the Lord has promised. Oh, beloved, don't let doubt cripple you. As I say, it robs you of things. One of the things it robs you of is joy. You can't be in a condition in which you're doubting your salvation and at the same time be truly, spiritually joyful. But the joy of the Lord is your strength. You must be in that condition of strength. Joy should be, though it's expressed differently by us all, joy should be undergirding all of our lives. We should be able to recognize all the goodness and mercy that has followed us all the days of our lives. Every morning we should awaken with fresh reasons to give thanks because there are new mercies every morning. And we keep coming back, as we emphasize this morning particularly, we keep coming back, what is the grounds of our justification? How is it that a man is made right before God? What is it that makes him distinct? Despite he might have all these similarities with the unregenerate, still cumbered by sin and other forms of experience in this world, and yet what makes him distinct it is this. He has a singular rest in Christ in his finished work. He trusts entirely on him. His argument before God is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He makes no argument or profession about his own works or deeds. He makes no Claim to goodness. He turns his eye onto Christ. He keeps his eye locked on Jesus Christ. His argument before a righteous and holy God is Jesus Christ. And he stands there. And on the day of judgment, he will stand there. And his argument will be Christ. 
all of Christ. That is our only hope. May the Lord bless his word. Let's bow together in prayer. Let me underscore to you, please do not adopt a mentality that the condition of doubt in some way is honorable before God. It is not. As we said this morning, it is sin. It needs to be repented of. We have every right before God to plead for deliverance from it. And even that we might be brought into a condition of ongoing victory, standing with this immovable confidence that Christ is our Savior. He has done enough. My rest is entirely in Him. Again, if you need particular questions answered, concerns addressed, I'd be glad to speak with you at any time and walk through the Scriptures with you. Lord, bless thy word. Thank you for the assurance that can be the experience of all your people. I pray for those who may be devoid of it. Oh God, that you would grant them, if they are thy people, grant them that infallible assurance that they are thine. Should there be some deceived, O oh God, expose that deception. Bring it to the light of thy word and bring true faith and repentance to bear in such hearts. We're thankful that even the hypocrite can find mercy with the Lord. Bless our time together. Be with us. I want a hymn that can, will keep us from falling and present us faultless before the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.